Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, the books of Hosea and Joel. These are significant books as we get to this stage in our study of the Old Testament in that you've seen a lot of God's justice, you've seen a lot of his judgment, a lot of the, the difficulties associated with these people turning their back on him and him having to execute those negative consequences that he had promised them multiple times through prophets. And so now we come to the book of Hosea, where I'll never forget years ago, in a seminary and institute teacher training meeting, listening to, at the time, Elder Henry B. Eyring as he talked about his experience teaching early morning seminary, and he was teaching the Old Testament year and feeling some of those, those difficulties with, do, do these kids, are, are they seeing a really angry and spiteful or vengeful God? And then he came to Hosea and saw this one-sided love story that just changed everything for him and his students. And that was a, that was a moment in my life where, where I thought to myself, I, I need to get to know this book better, and since then it has become my favorite of the often overlooked books in the Bible. This book also has been transformative in my life. When I came home from my mission, I was working that summer, and on my lunch breaks I wanted something to do. So I was looking for books to read. My mom had been an early morning seminary teacher in Minnesota for years. I mean, there's got to be a special place in heaven for anybody who can get up at 5 a.m. when it's 20 below zero every day for you know, 14 years. But she'd received a gift uh, of a book written by a number of BYU professors some years ago, and the book was called Isaiah and the Prophets. So as a recently returned missionary, I was really interested to dig deeper into the scriptures. And as I started reading this book on my lunch break, I was particularly intrigued about the book of Hosea, and I was so fascinated to understand, as Tyler's talking about, this love story of the mercy God had for his people. And I was so fascinated by how the Hebrew worked and how understanding the culture made the book uh, make more sense. I decided right then and there, I want to go learn Hebrew. And I thought, just having come home from Chile, where you speak Spanish, I thought, well, where am I going to learn Hebrew? I got to go to Israel. And a year later, I went to the BYU Jerusalem Center, which transformed my thinking about, I want to spend my life studying the scriptures personally and professionally. And uh, here, here I am almost 30 years later, finally get to teach this. And it really is one of the best books. And we invite you as you dig into this book to really look for, there's a number of important things, but specifically, how is God calling his people back into relationship with him as the great husband? And how is he inviting us to let go of anything that was distracting us? Anything we've done wrong, we're welcome back in. And that's this amazing love story of invitation into his, in his, his kingdom. I love it. So, as we begin, chapter one is filled with names. And, and Taylor has often said, the name is the lesson. So, as we begin, it's important to recognize the fact that his very name, this prophet, Hosea, the name means salvation. 
In fact, it's, it's the first name given to the prophet Joshua who replaces Moses way earlier in our, in our New Old Testament study. Uh, the first time you're introduced to him in the book of Numbers, he's called Oshia, or that's the Hebrew way of saying his name here, and later on it becomes Yehoshua um, or Joshua in English. So in that case, we just added Jehovah to the name. So Jehovah is salvation, which happens to become Jesus's name in Aramaic, Yeshua. It's Joshua. Jehovah is salvation. So at the outset of this book, recognize the fact that this is a book rooted in the same root word for the name of Jesus later on when he's born. Jehovah is salvation. So it's a book of salvation. This is a book about Jesus in a beautiful metaphor that connects directly with us. So we're going to be introduced to a whole bunch of other players in this uh, saga that unfolds, and many people have asked this question, is this an actual story? Did this really happen to a real guy named Hosea, or is it just an allegory, just a metaphor? And I don't know that I've ever seen anything author authoritatively um, finishing that debate on either side. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter so much whether it was an actual guy who actually experienced this or whether it's this, this allegory, kind of a parable story. Let's not miss the point. This is about the love of God for us, his people, and his perfection and our imperfection. That's the message of this book, this covenantal connection that we, never God, we keep breaking all the time and he keeps reestablishing with us as we move forward into this story. So for historical context, who is Hosea as he fits into the biblical timeline, the, the prophet, whether this actually happened, and I, I think it happened, he's in the northern kingdom, and if you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, the word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Those four names should have been a little bit familiar to you if you remember Isaiah. Those are the same four kings that Isaiah served under. So Hosea is a contemporary with Isaiah. The only difference is he's up north. Look at verse, the second half of verse 1, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So you've got one king up north in the northern kingdom, four kings down south during the same time period. Isaiah's down here, Hosea's up north with these, these tribes that are just about to be carried away captive and or destroyed by the Assyrians at the, at the end of, of his preaching and prophesying. So that kind of orients you on who he is, where he's living. So Jeroboam II is one of the longest-lived kings in the northern kingdom of Israel, and there's actually tremendous economic prosperity and even peace during his time. Uh, the international scene has changed. Syria in the north is a little weakened. Assyria is not threatening as much. And Hosea is dealing in these times where the people are seeing all this peace and prosperity, and you have these differences where people are using their resources to oppress those in society, among other things. And it seems 
significant that Hosea seems to be alive for a number of decades as this, the prosperity, we've seen the cycle, gets way high, the people become decadent, the prophets call them to repentance, and eventually God, as we hear here, I have invited you into the covenant. If you walk away, you will leave the land, but my arms of mercy will always be available for you. So Hosea, in some ways, reminds me a bit of Mormon, who sees this cycle of where his people are deeply prosperous and then turn away from God, even though his arms of mercy are wide open, and they end up suffering the consequences of persistently, consistently, and over a long period of time, rejecting God. So, we're excited to jump in and tell this story as it, as it comes off of the page to us. Let's start in verse 2. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredoms departing from the Lord. That's an interesting command, very unusual for God to command his prophet, go and marry a daughter of, of whoredoms. Go marry somebody who, who has, has completely been unfaithful in any kind of, of moral way. So in verse 3, we're introduced to his, his wife, Gomer. She's the daughter of Deblame. So if you look at these names for a moment, Gomer means complete. That's interesting. And she is the daughter of Deblame. You'll notice the die means two, two cakes. Two cakes of figs is kind of the, the um, implication here, almost as if it, it's to show this um, opulent pleasure. She is the offspring of prosperity that we've been talking about. This it's it's encapsulated in the name. She's she has what is the offspring of all of this double pleasure, this this fullness of everything I could want, and now Hosea marries Gomer. What's interesting is if somebody's complete, do they need anything? Do they need salvation? If you have all your needs taken care of, do you really need God anymore? <laughs> the answer is yes. But sometimes when we, when we think we're complete, when we have all of our physical needs taken care of, we may get lulled into carnal security and say, I'm complete, my salvation is secure, physical or whatever, and therefore I don't, I don't need this anymore. And it's interesting, God sends to somebody who believes they're complete, true completion, true salvation. So some interesting uh, symbols and metaphors going on here in the story. Yeah, so... Um, by the way, some of you are, are looking at this thinking, who, in, who would name their daughter Gomer? That's a, that's a really strange name to give to a girl. Um, well, her father is to blame for, for that name. Um, a little bit of dumb humor there. So their first child is born, and they name him Jezreel. You'll notice the name of God, El, in here. It means God sows to sow. Now, the name Jezreel comes up in other places in the Bible. You might be familiar with the Jezreel Valley up in Galilee. Yeah, this beautiful, really highly productive farmland still to this day, and it was called the Jezreel Valley because for people it's like they see God's hand in their lives with all this productive fruit, vegetation, and plants. It was 
really the breadbasket of Israel as it is still today. As it is today. So it, it's his name implies a planter going out sowing the fields with these seeds that they pull out of a bag and then scatter them and, and bring forth abundantly. So the name Jezreel is directly a foreshadowing for what is about to happen at the end of Hosea's ministry. Assyria is going to come in and sow the children of Israel into all other parts of the empire and from there out into other parts of, of the world as they continue to scatter. But here we are in the latter days and God's asking us to harvest all those seeds that were planted so long ago. That's part of the purpose of missionary work in the Restoration is let's go gather in all those who've been scattered. And in my study today, I learned something that I really wish I'd known a long time ago. The name Jezreel is also a sound play on the name Israel. So we use the letter J in English, but in the Hebrew, it'd be Yezreel, Yezreel. which sounds like Yisrael, which is how you say Israel. So God revealing through Hosea is doing a word play that God sows or scatters not just Jezreel, but it's Jezreel, Yisrael. So when people heard this, they're like, wow, God is planting us, but am I allowing him to plant me where I should belong, or am I going to be planted elsewhere because I decided to walk away from him? Which that deciding to walk away from him comes up in child number two and three. So you'll notice right after, right after it gave us the name of Jezreel in verse four, it says, for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Yehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. So you get this first major prophecy of Hosea saying, just a little while more, and the house, the kingdom of Israel, of the house of Israel is going to cease. We're, we're going to be scattered. Jezreel is going to take place. It's going to be sown throughout the world, which now brings us down into verse 6, she conceived again and bare a daughter, and God said unto him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. So child number two, this, this sister, Lo-Ruhamah, means no or not, because the Lo is the opposite in the Hebrew, um, no mercy. Yeah, it's an interesting word. Ruhamah means like beloved, merciful, if you actually know anything about the Islamic religion, they will call God al-Rahim, which means the merciful, abundant one. And so God is essentially saying, the mercy that I have made available is actually not available if you choose to walk away. To be in the covenantal relationship, you have to be faithful. If you are unfaithful and you're outside the covenant, I can't give you the mercy. And so this daughter's name is to symbolize for the ten northern tribes of Israel, because of your wickedness, you won't get mercy. You can't. The laws of justice mean you cannot have the mercy until you choose to accept God as your Savior. So put this in this historical setting up north with these ten tribes where they're being told that this is going to happen to you but they might be scratching their heads saying, but what about our cousins in our, in our opposing country down south in the kingdom of Judah? Look at verse 7. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah. So the house of Judah is going to get this Ruhamah, 
you're not going to get it up here in the north. You've been warned and warned and warned. They've at least repented enough. They've had a few righteous kings along the way to help them, so they're going to get mercy from the Lord and will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow or by, nor by sword nor by battle, by horses nor by horsemen. And we see that fulfilled with King Hezekiah and the Lord destroying Sennacherib and that Assyrian army um, through his own miraculous means. Now we get to verse 8. When she had weaned lo Ruhamah, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, Call his name Lo-Amai, for ye are not my people, and I will not be your God. What Taylor's describing here, they've, they've taken themselves outside of the arms of, of mercy, and Lo-Amai is you are not my people. You've heard this phrase over and over again this year as we've studied the Old Testament, that, that all covenants, whether it be Abrahamic or Mosaic or baptismal or endowment, all covenants we make are at the core a strengthening of this statement, I will be your God and you will be my people. And now, with this third child, lo am I, Hosea is saying to the people, you're not his people, and he's not your God, not because he broke the covenant yet again, but because you refuse to abide in the covenant. You refuse to accept him as your God and to treat him and trust him like a God, and so he can't treat you like his people. So the names are the lesson. It's the, that is the overview of the history of the house of Israel in that northern kingdom, is this first chapter of Hosea where you're getting these, this marriage, this most unusual marriage, and these three children. Thank heaven that chapter 1 doesn't end with verse 9 with this reality of God's justice needing to be sent down on the people, thank heaven that you get verse 10, yet. You notice that first word, yet? It's in spite of this, you're not my people and I, I'm not your God anymore, by your choice, by your choosing, yet gives you this counter hope in the future, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea which cannot be measured nor numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, that it shall be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. I love how our, our prophets, seers and revelators today focus us on our identity more than on just what we do and say. Uh, President Nelson has, has given us three things to really define the core identity as children of God, children of the covenant, and disciples of Christ. I love that. It, it, it gives me hope for when my behaviors and my outward actions fall short to be able to go back to those deepest core identities of who I am, who I was and who I'm striving to become, and it gives me hope for the present when I'm struggling in any aspect of life. God is acting in covenant here. 
We're going to take you back to Genesis chapter 12, where God said to Abraham, here's what I'm going to do for you and for all your posterity. So verse 10 is God expressing his ongoing and eternal covenantal obligation to make salvation available to everybody through the family of Abraham. That is God's covenantal duty. Now, he can't force anybody to stay in the covenant, which is what we've been seeing in the preceding verses, that the people use their agency to go follow after other gods. And eventually God says, fine, you want to be in league with other gods? Go live in their lands. But I love that the, the scriptures, even though they can be complex, really can be boiled down to the simplicity of covenants, that God has made an eternal covenant through Abraham to all of us, that we all are freely offered salvation, and the culmination of that is through Jesus Christ. And all these prophets have been trying to teach that. And in return, he just seeks our love and loyalty. And if you look at Hosea, you can look at the consequences of what happens when people choose to be loyal, what happens when people choose to be unfaithful, and how does God respond? In the long run, what does he do? And ultimately, in everlasting acts of kindness and mercy and love, he continues to invite everybody in. So no matter where you're at in your life, no matter what you have done, there's nothing you have done that will keep you out of God's presence if now you say, I'm going to turn to God my Father and reconnect myself into that identity that is eternal, that I am his child. So let the past go, give it over to Jesus, join with God, and let his salvation play out in your life. That is the message we have right here in Hosea. I love that. It's that idea of regardless of where you are, go back to those three elements that President Nelson has given us. Child of God, child of the covenant, disciple of Christ. We can all do a little better with that today than we maybe did yesterday, and that's empowering. Now, you'll notice up to this point in chapter 1, um, before we got to verse 10, it was all about this scattering and these consequences. Well, now verse 10 was th this promise of coming back, and then look at verse 11, which we're going to read verse 11 here together, and in a 21st century context, it's, it's a nice verse. It, it, it gives us hope for this gathering effort on both sides of the veil. Sometimes I think, Taylor, we put a lot of emphasis on our missionary work in the church as part of the gathering, and I think what our prophets, seers, and revelators today are helping us to see is that you are doing gathering work when you do temple and family history work just as much as when you do ministering, just as much as when you do uh, missionary work. These are not separate um, elements of the gospel. Uh, Elder David A. Bednar has talked about this multiple times, this idea of it's, they are all part of the same gospel of Jesus Christ, and this gathering effort involves all of these things that we're doing. Look at verse 11 now, in that, that context. That's a helpful reminder. I'll just say that's helpful because sometimes we might emphasize one part of the gospel gathering over the others and therefore forget that God is trying to gather all his children on any side of the veil at any time. So if you go to verse 11, it says, then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, one leader. In Hosea's context from the northern tribe, tribes, the northern kingdom, in this time period, that's a big promise that we are going to be reunited 
as a family. Um, I, I don't know what your family situation is, but we live in a world where there are struggles in many families with division, divisiveness, differences of opinions that grow to the level where it can tear families apart, and it can feel almost as if there's no hope for that family to ever come back together and be united under one head ever again. And I'm sure most of the people in the kingdom of Israel felt that way about the people down in the kingdom of Judah and vice versa. And so to get this promise of the latter-day restoration of the entire tribe, uh, tribes of Israel coming back together under one head, and that head being the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a beautiful promise for all of us today, which I hope motivates us in our missionary temple and family history ministering efforts, our, our gathering efforts, whatever they may look like, that it becomes more of our core identity being manifested in how we act, how we treat people, how we talk to people, how we love, share, and invite in our, in our missionary efforts, how we really truly minister and how we do everything we can to help those on the other side of the veil to uh, enter into these covenants with the Lord. It's, it's a powerful opener to this story that we've now got the entire uh, message of the scattering and the gathering of Israel in eleven short verses on one page of an often overlooked book in the Old Testament that, like I said, it's, it's one of our favorites of the entire canon for a good reason, which now brings us to chapter 2 because you're thinking, okay, all is well. This is, this is a great love story, uh, uh, unlikely, but great love story that has taken place, and we're on our way, right? So chapter 2 opens with kind of a sad part of the story because, again, we would think, ah, this is going well. Well, it doesn't go well because there's, there's a breakup here that leads to some pretty, um, pretty serious consequences in verse 2. Yeah, because of the actions of Gomer, she essentially divorced herself from her husband Hosea. So Hosea says to his children, which he've now renamed them slightly, he says, Ami or Ami, my people, and Rama, mercy or love, you children, please plead with your mother because I am no longer her husband, she's no longer my wife. Because of her actions, we've become divorced. God is using this relationship between Hosea and Gomer to show that even though we may have walked away from God by our actions, he will plead with us everlastingly and invite us with loving mercy and kindness back into the covenant. So it's this fascinating turn that we see throughout the chapter that Hosea seems to be, as symbol of God, pained at the loss of his wife who, even though she had done disastrous things, it seems that Hosea did not want the breakage of the marriage. So you pick up the, the story here in verse 5. For their mother hath played the harlot. She that conceived them hath done shamefully. For she said, now as we jump into what she said, notice the focus on self. Notice the pronoun usage here. She said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Now, we just went through a long list of 
of necessities for life, right? These are, these are things that everybody would, would need, this food and clothing. And anciently, legally, we, we have from surrounding societies legal requirements for a husband to provide these very things for his wife. And so a husband who's not doing that, the wife actually has legal recourse to say, you've not been providing those things to me. I can go find somebody else. And this is the big plot twist is that how could, now remember, Hosea represents God. God gives us everything. Where are you going to find all these things except with God? And Hosea, who'd been a faithful husband, is saying, why are you running after other people for everything that I already offer you? Yeah, so she's going to her former lovers for all these things. And look, let, let's just take a moment and look at this list that give me my bread and water. Now, I, I don't know that Hosea meant for this to apply in a sacramental context in the, in the latter days, but as we read these scriptures from our perspective today, looking back in time, we can liken this story to us in such a way that it maybe has a little added meaning to us that maybe it didn't have in the Old Testament times where they didn't have the sacrament ordinance. Isn't it fascinating? When do bread and water get removed or taken away from somebody? It's usually only with a serious breakage of a covenantal promise or a, or a covenantal connection. It's usually pretty major sins that cause a person not to be able to partake of the bread and water of the from the source of salvation, Hosea, in this case, Jesus Christ. And so it's as if she's saying, I don't want that covenantal connection with you anymore, God. I want, I want the connection with my lovers. I want to go get the pleasures of the world from them. I want to, I want to um, make my offerings at their sacrament tables, so to speak, have, not at yours. And have them take care of my needs instead of God fulfilling my needs. And then you'll notice the next couplet my wool and my flax. I don't want the garment that Hosea offers me. I don't want to be clothed by Hosea. I don't want to, to be endowed by him. The word enduo in the Greek means to put on a sacred garment or to, to be clothed in a sacred garment. I don't want his clothing. I want the clothing of my lovers, the clothing of the world mine oil and my drink. Um, oil that, that provides, has medicinal as well as all kinds of other benefits in their culture, in their time, and my drink, all the sustenance, I don't want any of that that Jesus has to offer. I want that which comes from the world. Now, isn't it fascinating if you look at Jesus as the living water and the bread of life and this, this offers us this oil, this salve to, to soothe all of our struggles, our pains, our afflictions, spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, and she's rejected all of that. Can you see why there was a divorce? Can you see why there's this separation? It's not because of anything Hosea did. It's one-sided. Look at verse 6, therefore, which is a cause-effect, 
the cause is in verse 5, the effect follows in verse 6 and 7. This is the outcome, this is the result of you choosing to turn your back on all these things that Jesus freely offers to us in his gospel. And Hosea had been fully faithful as a husband doing everything that in their society he was legally obligated to do. And she said, that's not enough. In fact, I don't like how you're fulfilling your role as a husband. And so I'm going to go find somebody else. Even though you're doing it, she had no cause for complaint. So because of that, here's what he's going to do. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. Uh, there's, there's this amazing concept that C.S. Lewis included in the Chronicles of Narnia in Book One, The Magician's Nephew, as Narnia is being created, and in that first uh, book where you get this new land and then Queen Jadis has been introduced into that world, this evil uh, character, um, there's a tree in a garden with a wall around it, and one of the characters there, Diggory, has to go in and pluck one piece, one apple from that tree and bring it to, to Aslan, the lion, the creator, the Christ figure, and outside of that garden there's a little placard and it has a little rhymed saying. The last two lines of that saying, or of that, that rhyme, listen to this. For those who steal or those who climb my walls shall find their heart's desire and find despair. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world that offers a lot of bread and a lot of water and a lot of wool and a lot of flax and a lot of oil and a lot of drink. It's not none of which come from the Lord directly. And unfortunately, we live in a day and age when it's very easy to go and get whatever your heart desires. But if we're not careful, like the children of Israel in the kingdom of Israel at the time of Hosea, you're going to get everything that you desire, and in the process, the thing you're going to find is despair. You're going to find that Alma 41 is true when it says wickedness never was happiness. So Gomer's out looking, she's seeking, and the Lord here is saying she's not going to find. She's not going to find what she really deeply and desperately wants, and finally when she hits rock bottom, she says, basically, I, I need to return to my first husband, or I need to go home, very similar to the prodigal son parable that Jesus is going to tell in Luke chapter 15. It's that idea that for some of you, you might be a point, at a point in your life where you're, you're coming back into the covenant from whatever uh, life experiences you may have had. There's something powerful about coming home to that covenant in the church and into those covenants in the temple of our God. There's something that just brings 
all of those uh, those former blessings that we used to enjoy back into our life. And don't you love the fact that you don't have a God up in heaven who at this point says, after what you did, no way, Gomer, you're never coming back. Quite the opposite. Let's watch what happens in the second half of this chapter as God now reaches out to try to bring her home as well. So there is a bit of consequences she suffers for a few verses here where she tries to get what she thinks she deserves or needs, and when she starts to return, she doesn't get immediately all the blessings that once were freely offered, but eventually she does. And we'll point out the use of the word Baal here is quite significant. So you might be familiar from other passages in the Old Testament that Baal was known in the ancient biblical world as um, a god of vegetation and rain and kind of a fertility god. His, his name actually could mean Lord or even husband. Let me spell this a little bit better here. And Hosea is very specifically trying to point out because the Israelites, remember this whole story is also to symbolize what's going on with the Israelites. Many of the Israelites were worshiping Baal. Remember the story of Elijah and all the priests of Baal. So Hosea is saying, you Israelites have been turning to Baal as your Lord and Master, trying to get all these things. But who is the real husband who brings you home and gives you everything? It's God himself. It is not Baal. And so you'll see this contrast going on in this chapter and actually throughout Hosea where he says, it is not this Lord you should be looking to, but Jehovah who is the source of salvation. And we will see how he offers that salvation uh, beginning in verse 14. So um, as she's making her journey back to him, as Taylor mentioned, it, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not instantaneous. There are natural consequences for some of her previous decisions. Look at verse 8. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal, which ironically they're worshiping Baal saying, thank you for all of these things, and he's saying, they didn't know it was me who gave it to them and they're now giving what I gave to them they're giving it to Baal, they're, they're giving him the credit when he's just an idol, which to me signals something amazing for us today. You can look at all of the outlets that this world offers you, whether it be uh, drugs or alcohol or physical pleasures or money or prestige or honors and glory and riches in any of their forms, none of those things have the power to save you. None of those things have the power to heal you. Those, those, all they can offer you is a temporary uh, pleasure, a, a temporary burst to fulfill a desire, back to the line from Narnia. They shall find their heart's desire and find despair. It comes to a point where people end up despising that which they have spent so much of their time, money, and energy, and effort to, to attain, it becomes, it becomes miserable to them, and they're, they end up in despair. And so he's making that 
distinction very clear. It was me who gave these things to you. And then in verse 9, therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof, and my wine in the season thereof, and will, will recover my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. And that might sound harsh. Can I suggest to you that that is the most merciful, loving, gracious thing God could do for her at this time? Because if he doesn't give her a famine, a drought, and, and take these things away from her, then she's going to continue to feel complete, the meaning of her name. She's not going to turn to him. It's the most merciful, gracious thing that he could do, which is give her an opportunity to recognize the contrast between what she now has versus what she used to have when she was with him. What I love is that when she realizes that she cannot have what she wants without being in covenantal relationship, when she is finally experienced, again, this is a symbol also of Israel, that you cannot have life's blessings without being in covenant with God, he says in verse 14, I will allure her or I will allure my people, I will invite them in and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. There's an allusion here or a reference back to the time of Exodus where God took the people out of Egypt, which was the greatest civilization at the time, out into the howling wilderness where they were fully dependent upon him. And then you'll see in verse 15, he starts to bless them with the things that they need. Verse 16, it should be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and shalt call me no more Baali. And Ishi means my man or my husband, instead of my Lord or Baal. And so, the symbol here is that you will finally recognize the true identity of the one who has been faithful in the covenant and thereby has invited you to be faithful too. And probably one of the greatest verses or set of verses anywhere in scriptures is just a few verses later where the culmination of this covenantal story of love and faithfulness is uttered by God. So, if, as you pick that up, and, and I agree, some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, 18 through 23, and in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely. You, you don't need to worry about uh, violence and, and war and bloodshed anymore. And then verse 19, and I will betroth thee unto me forever. Remember, they were already married. She broke the covenant, there was a divorce, now there's a betrothal again. I will betroth thee unto me forever. This, is a, this has sealing key implications attached to it, that we bring, we gather people into the waters of baptism not to end there, but to get them to the point where they can be eternally sealed, eternally betrothed, so to speak, um, to each other as well as to the God who, who is giving them this covenant. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. Don't you love the fact that he's lumping all of these attributes and characteristics of God together in the same verse that seem like at times competing opposites, this judgment and loving-kindness and mercies, I think one of the messages for me from Hosea is that the God we worship is a God of love and mercy 
and graciousness. He's also a God of justice and judgment and consequences as an extension of his mercy, of his love for us. And this story, if we're not careful, we we walk away from this story saying, oh, that's a fine story that happened back in the 700s BC, in the 8th century BC. It's great for those people in, in the northern kingdom of Israel. Yeah, it is for them, but more importantly, it's a great story for me right here, right now, today, because if I'm really honest with myself, this isn't just a story about an ancient prophet and a, a daughter of whoredoms. This is a story about Jesus and me. I'm Gomer. You're Gomer. We're collectively and individually Gomer. This is our story. This is very biographical. And anytime you go through the repentance process, anytime you have faith in Christ to the point where you recognize where you've fallen short and you, and you repent and you come to him, you get to experience these words personally today. They're alive today as much as they ever were in, seven, in the 700s BC. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. And then you finish with verse 23. I will sow her unto me in the earth. Did you catch that? So I, God, will sow her unto me in the earth. So that's Jezreel. That's their first child. And I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. Remember the second child? Lo Ruhamah now becomes Ruhamah. We take the low out. Now you do get mercy. And let's get the third child. And I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. These are covenantal claims. It's almost like they're taking marriage vows. It's like, you're my wife, you're my husband, you're my God, you're my people. So this, this relationship has just been cemented. And that, to me, is the essence of this great gathering effort that we're all a part of today uh, across the world, wherever you may live, is it's bringing people into this relationship with God, not as a, a passing fad or a, a temporary trend that at the first sign of displeasure or, or being offended, I'm going to jump back out of this relationship with God, but rather it's a deepening and every experience, and some of you have had some negative experiences at church with people because you're dealing with imperfect people, but we would hope that those negative experiences with people or frustrations with doctrine or history or doubts that you're facing or family members that are struggling, we would hope that that doesn't cause you to then turn away from God and turn to the solutions of the world or to the quote-unquote lovers of the world and all these things that the world has to offer, but rather that those would cause us to turn even more to the God who gave us this covenant, who gave us life, and plead with him to help us better understand what we can do 
to more completely say, Thou art my God, and I am thy people. We had this word show up several times in the English, uh, betrothed. So when you put be in front of something, it means full or complete or fully. And troth is a variant of the word truth. You can see how the O and the U are interchanged. interchanged. So the betrothal is God is speaking in full truth. The full truth is I'm your God. The full truth is no matter what you choose, you technically are still my people. Like no matter what you do, you still are a child of God. You can deny it, forget it, you can act like it's not true, but the full truth is you really are God's child, and he really does love you, and he is fully committed to you forever, as long as you're willing. And we've talked in the past that you can trust God. That word comes from the same word for truth. For he is the tree of life, also connected to these words, where we can find salvation. This concludes part one of this week's episodes. Please watch part two to continue with the discussion. The link will be in the description below as well as included on the end screen. Thanks for watching and know that you're loved.